Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. For today's podcast, I was joined in studio by our politics editor, Pat Leahy, and also by Jane Souter, who's director of the Future of Journalism Media course in DCU, where she is an associate professor. She also describes herself on Twitter as a recovering journalist. Now, it is back to school week for the Irish political classes as they cover their copybooks, sharpen their pencils, and check the name tags on their gansies in preparation for the early September rituals of the party think-ins and budget negotiations. There's been a bit of a flurry of activity around the future of the Fine Gael, Fine Gael Confidence and Supply Agreement and I first asked Pat where that particular process stood right now. Pat, everybody's back. They're all at each other's throats already. Uh, confidence and supply and how's that going to uh, develop over the next six months or so? Well, in, in a way, that's the question. So I suppose the Taoiseach's request of Micheál Martin to open, which was published yesterday, letter that he wrote to him last week, seeking an opening of the uh, discussions on an extension of the Confidence and Supply Agreement until 2020, uh, and Micheál Martin's subsequent rapid reply after that publication saying, I'll talk to you certainly, but after the budget... Those two steps could reasonably have been anticipated. Can I just ask one thing? Are these real letters? You know what I mean? Does it I mean who writes a letter these days? Does Leo whip out the Ballard and Bond and the, the Mont Blanc and he says, you know, dearest Michael, it's been some weeks now since our lovely weekend in Kerry. Uh, the days have dragged, but now it's September and I'm looking forward to sitting down with you. Is it, you know? Oh, no, Hugh, this is quite <laughs> lyrical, really. Clearly, some practice at this sort of thing yourself. Um, I, I think it was a letter. It was, uh, I, I'm, I'm told, emailed at 4 p.m. last Friday. Electronic letter. An electronic letter, but a letter nonetheless. Mm. Um, just like newspapers, they may be electronic, but they're still newspapers. Um, so those two steps, though, uh, I think to come back to the point I was going to make, could reasonably have been expected. That's exactly how we thought that the political term was going to start because, and how do we know that? It's because uh, they, they told us this is what they would do, or at least the Taoiseach indicated this is what he would do after that meeting and exchange in Kerry in July. They said they would be in contact again. Uh, the, 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 the subject or the content of his request uh, hasn't changed. He wants, to, uh, the, the Taoiseach wants the two sides to sit down now and discuss and agree an extension of the confidence and supply agreement, allowing the government to continue under uh, its present dispensation and they should agree a date, he says, uh, for an election in, in 2020. Now, Micheál Martin is not at this stage ruling that out, but he is saying that he's not going to talk about it until after the budget and probably towards the end of the year, which is exactly what he said uh, to to Mr. Varadkar and everybody else in July. Within the Confidence and Supply Agreement, uh, it, it, it says that it should be reviewed at the end of 2018. So he's not for moving. The question is, so while these two steps may have been anticipated, I think, you know, the question remains then, 
what now? What does Mr. Varadkar do now? So that's the... That's so if the, I could uh, continue to overuse my rather overextended metaphor in the first place, in this wooing letter, uh, so, um, so, <coughs> such as it is, why is why is Leo Varadkar continuing to press his case? Is that a message to the broader population as opposed to to Fianna Fáil? Well, I think if you accept, as seems to me logical, that Leo Varadkar knew what Micheál Martin's response would be, then the purpose of the letter cannot have been to communicate this to Micheál Martin. So who else is he talking to? So the answer, I think, has to be is that he's talking to the public. He's demonstrating to them that he is seeking stability. He is putting the thought of a general election into the political ether. He is acclimatising people to the idea of a general election later this year, though I don't think that's realistic or more likely early next year, uh, so that if and when it comes, he is not seen as springing an election on them. Now, I don't know, but I don't think that Mr. Varadkar has decided he wants an election as soon as possible. But I do think he wants to keep that option open. And if he wants to keep that option open, as I think, uh, think he does, then it is sensible to put that idea out there. That's what I think is happening. Jane, what do you make of this? The terrible overused cliche at the moment about politics, about kabuki theatre, that it's some form, there's ritualised ceremonial in order to show certain things rather than to achieve anything. And there's a touch of the kabuki about this, isn't there? Oh, there is. You know, but that's how a lot of politics and union negotiations are and everything go, and I think Pat is absolutely right. You know what I mean? There was no doubt what Micheál Martin was going to say. Uh, Varadkar knew that, absolutely. And so then the point is, presumably, that if there is an election, then you have to be able to blame the other side for doing it rather than you trying to take a advantage, you know, looking at Theresa May and how that uh, she ruled that day, you know, when it was totally her call. And so... If he does it now and then the negotiations don't go as well post-budget, then he's kind of laying the foundations for perhaps being able to blame Fianna Fáil for not putting the stability of the country first and how he's going to have no choice but to go in order to ensure the stability of the of the country. But as Pat says, that's a pretty risky strategy, so no doubt he hasn't actually decided that that's definitely the way he's going to go. But, you know, he's leaving it open uh, for, for the possibility. And, and it, it would seem to me, looking at this, that from Fianna Fáil's point of view, Micheál Martin is absolutely right to play it as, as he is. There's there's no advantage for Micheál Martin or for sure, Fianna Fáil why not, why not, having would parallel he? negotiations going on on budgets. And, uh, mm. and, and Sure, he said, so, you know, like it, he needs to have as, as much... Uh, way as he possibly can on the budget mm. so as he can claim as much credit as possible for any bits of it which happen to go um which happen to go his way and uh, to have another negotiation in there beforehand just wouldn't make any sense and he's always said he's going to wait till after the third budget and that was what was said when the agreement was done so um yeah the, it would be illogical for him to agree it now so uh, am i being unfair then pat when i think that this kind of kabuki looks a bit ridiculous, as kabuki does sometimes, maybe to Western eyes anyway. You know that this this letter, which we knew we were going to get this response to from Leo Varadkar, is just a kind of meaningless piece of showing off. I don't think it is. It is meaningless, but I think its 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 meaning is not as in kabuki is not is its ostensible meaning. I think it has. It is as you say. It is done to demonstrate 
something to a particular audience. Um, I mean, I think, you know, to bring it back to the reality of election uh, timetable and to, 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 you know, to digress momentarily from our discussion of Kabuki. Japanese uh, dramaturgy in general. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that there isn't a reality to decisions being made on an election until there is some certainty on Brexit. I don't think that the government or Mr. Varadkar could reasonably call an election to achieve political stability for Brexit when that election would take place at precisely the most sensitive time for the Brexit negotiations, which would be into October, November. The deadline for uh, agreement on a withdrawal agreement uh, between the EU and the UK is the October summit. Nobody expects that deadline to be met. It's likely to go into November or possibly into December. And at that point, we will either know that an agreement is to be made or that an agreement isn't to be made, in which case you're looking at the much more serious situation of a, a British crash out next March. I think that's a less likely outcome, but it is still at, 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 at the moment uh, a, 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 an outcome that may reasonably be, uh, be entertained. So, but we're not going to know that until those negotiations are concluded either in success or in failure. That conclusion won't happen until November and December. And that's why I think that any decision on an election will not take place until after. And how much impact on that decision by either party, by either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, will what happens at the Brexit deal have? If the two options which you've laid out there, one is a deal of some sort is cracked probably at some point in early to mid-December. Well, then we know what the landscape is for the next two, three, four years. Um, And you could have an election in January, February. Yes. In fact, there might be an argument for having the election because once that is clear, people talk about the Brexit date in March, but actually March isn't the important date. It's the conclusion of the negotiations which will signal what's going to happen uh, in in March. Now, clearly, if there is, if there's no agreement... Or another referendum. And you're looking at a British... Crash or out or, or, some, or, or, or just or, general or, or, unpredictability or, or, and potential chaos. Then it becomes yeah. much more difficult for either party to cause an election. But if well, there is an agreement and, you know, the March date goes ahead, which essentially means that nothing changes until the end of 2020, then there's an argument for actually having an election in the interests of stability uh, at, uh, at that stage. And I, I wouldn't take it at all as a given that there will be an extension of the confidence and supply agreement um, in, that, uh, in, in that case, in, in, in that situation. But in a in a crashing out of Brexit or crashing out of Europe situation, Jane, I mean, there's a strong argument for a national government, actually, isn't there, for that period of chaos which you'd have next year? Well, yeah, but the confidence and supply agreement is almost that, isn't it? You know what I mean? So I don't see why, you know, it's not like there's an awful lot of disagreement about what we're going to do in the in the event of a no-deal Brexit. You know, there's the plans are being made by the Department of Finance and if Fianna Fáil comes in rather than Fianna Gael, I don't think that, you know, those plans are are going to change, you know. Well, so, I think that, that yeah. Fianna Fáil frontbenchers who are jealously looking across the Dáil Chamber at their counterparts in government uh, wouldn't think it's a national government, uh, given that none of them are in ministerial chairs. And no, but I don't think poli- I don't think the sort of policy that is, is going to be enacted to deal with a no-deal Brexit is going to be dramatically different 
if it's either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. No, and there's a high degree. And the other one doing a confidence and supply. I think there's actually a fair amount of stability in that situation. It, you know, if if that is the choice between the, between the two and things. And then what about the other part of this process, which is the budget negotiations themselves, which start this week, is that correct? As we speak, they are, they have begun. Uh, Fianna Fáil negotiators went into the Department of Finance this morning. And how like how how are they likely to go? Are there are there areas of contention? Are there things in particular that Fianna Fáil is looking for that may cause strains on the other side? I mean, we heard from Pascal Donoghue yeah, uh, on this podcast last week in terms of some of what his priorities were. Yeah, we'll know a little bit more about that later, I think. Um, there will be Fianna Fáil, things that Fianna Fáil wants. There will be things that it wants to be seen to get uh, in uh, in this budget. Um, and I suppose remains to be seen whether the government is willing Do we know to, what they are? Afford, to, to afford it. We don't as of yet. They haven't published anything. Um, their negotiators may speak to us a little bit later and uh, we should have some idea of that. They have talked about this budget being uh, uh, that, that it has to be a housing budget. Micheál Martin was uh, on RTE on Monday talking to Sean O'Rourke about how they wanted to see additional investment and additional money for social housing. But in a way, that's what everybody says and the government says if it needs more money, we'll give it. The, the, the logjam in provision of social housing is not so much money. It, 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 it's, it's a whole a whole raft of other things. So, um, so there will undoubtedly be Fianna Fáil asks and though it's difficult to see what lies open to Fianna Fáil if it didn't get. Now, presumably, if Leo Varadkar wants to negotiate an extension to the deal after the budget, as he wants to do now, he will want to keep Fianna Fáil on, uh, on side and demonstrate to Fianna Fáil that there is something in this in an extension for them because the nature of deal-making is that there must be something for both sides in it. So I, I, I think Pascal Donoghue, Leo Varadkar, will be, uh, will be aware of this and will want to demonstrate you know, some capacity to, to give Fianna Fáil uh, at least some of what it wants uh, out of this budget. The other thing to say about the budget is it will be, in, in, in a way, you know, and it seems a counterintuitive thing to say, but making budgets in the in an era where there is some resources available to the finance minister is, is kind of a politically more difficult task in a way than when there is no resources available whatsoever because the resources afford you some choices. Now, the fact of the matter is that, you know, in a whatever three billion or so budget, um, or three billion budget expansion, many of what that money will be used for has already been committed. Yeah, so Cliff had like a really good piece on that today. Taylor's writing about it yeah. today, yeah. So demographic pressures, public sector pay, commitments on capital spending uh, for the next year. That eats up most of... You can actually end up budget. disappointing people more, ironically, with an expansionary budget than with a... With, than with yeah, a, because people are looking, yes. is there going to be tax or spending and there's so little room yeah. for, but, for uh, any There will be a tax package. Spending. There yeah. will be a welfare package. I think Pascal Donoghue will have to do, and we've talked about it in this studio before, I think he'll have to do what he what he did last year, which was to introduce extra taxation measures on the day to provide himself with the yeah, resources. Some new carbon taxes or something. Whatever, whatever it turns yeah. out to be. But um but but the, 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 the art of constructing budgets in an era of relative plenty 
is is a tricky one, and I think it will be a dicey few weeks. Yeah, for isn't the just the last point on 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 this particular subject? Isn't the reality for Fianna Fáil is that the the real attraction of uh, of extending this arrangement for another year or so is that they're not in great shape for fighting an election right now. They've had not a great year. They're not. Their standing in the polls isn't terrific. Isn't they great. need a need a bit of time to. They need a bit of time. The whole um, the, mar- the the abortion referendum didn't go particularly well for them. It made things difficult. You know, there's definitely rifts in the party. The whole thing about the presidential election and, you know which Fianna Fáil councillors and former TDs and ministers are backing which candidate. It doesn't make for um, the party all coming together as one in in, uh, in any shape or form. So, yeah, I'd say it's, you know, if I was Micheál Martin, I'd definitely prefer this time next year than, uh, than this autumn or there's even next view, spring. There's also a view in Fianna Fáil that the longer the Varadkar administration goes on, the more the more likely this is going to, off. or there will be some it's, trip up, or yeah. there will be some something. Yeah, having yeah. having said that, um, I I don't get the sense amongst many Fianna Fáilers, Certainly, it is present among some, but among many Fianna Fáilers, I don't get the sense that they're as afraid of an election as some people in Fianna Gael think they are, and partly that's because of if you if you you try and look forward to the post election landscape and examine the topography of that some sort of an arrangement between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael will probably be necessary not certainly but will probably be necessary to form a government yeah, now but that i isn't it the case that like most of the the Fianna Fáil incumbents if you like are fairly sure that they'll get back in another election. So they're not worried that they're going to lose any seats. But the question is whether they can pick up any new seats or many new seats. And at the moment, it certainly doesn't look, you know, if they went in three weeks time, that they'd be picking up a lot of seats. So their hope would be if it was this time next year instead, that in fact, there is some chance of that. I think that's right. But actually... I I was referring to the construction, the, the, the construction of the next government. So it seems to me that, you know, in, in modern Irish politics, there's, there's two distinct, related certainly, but distinct phases. There's the actual election battle, but then there's the competition to put together a government. And as we saw the last time, that can take some time. And that is a competitive process in and of, it, uh, in and of itself. Now, from the perspective of, you say, if if if, if, if election result threw up anything like what polls at the moment tend to suggest it would be Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael would be the largest party, Fianna Fáil the second largest party, some sort of an arrangement between them would be necessary. So would it be another confidence and supply agreement where Fianna Fáil goes back into opposition and agrees a confidence and supply arrangement with Fianna Gael? I, I think that would be pretty difficult for a lot of Fianna Fáilers to swallow. Whereas if you look at what Le- the Taoiseach, when he was a Fianna, Fáil, Fianna Gael negotiator, after the last election favoured, which was the grand coalition idea, that might be more acceptable to Fianna Fáil front it, it, it might be, but let me posit another alternative here. Fianna Sorry, Fáil, just, just, Fianna... just to make the point, the, the final point of, of, from that, that, that projection is that I think that means that even those Fianna Fáilers, some of them on the front bench, who think that they wouldn't win an election now, 
they might think that they might end up in government after it anyway. Right, there, so, is, so, there is another alternative, which is that Fianna Fáil failed to deliver on the promise of Micheál Martin, which is to get them back to being the largest party after the next election. Fianna Gael remains the largest party. A natural uh, outcome of that is that there's a heave against Micheál Martin. He's had his, his, his three goes uh, and, and, has, and has failed three times in a row. And a new leader of Fianna Fáil assembles a government that might include Sinn Féin and perhaps some other party. Yeah, that's um, that that that's a possibility. I think it's certainly, I think it's certainly true that if Michal Martin doesn't lead Fianna Fáil back to government after the next election, that he will his time as, as Fianna Fáil leader will certainly be at an end. It'd be difficult to see how he could reasonably stay on to have another go, a fourth go. Or as one so, Fianna Fáiler said to me, like the 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 one reason why they will never do a grand coalition with Fianna Gael is that that will end the entire history of the state where the government, where we're led by either one or the other. And it would allow somebody else to come in and be a possible largest, uh, be a possible leader of the government. And so, therefore, they're, they're never going to, to do that. Uh, I'm not sure that they're never going to do it. Mm. And I remember uh, after the last election, during that couple of months period between February 2016 and the formation of the government in May, there was a lot of speculation, some of it marked out by a certitude that proved uh, uh, ill-founded. Subsequently, there was a lot of uh, speculation, a lot of prediction that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael would eventually uh, do, uh, do a deal. And I, I spent a week driving around the country, speaking to grassroots members of Fianna Fáil, virtually to a man and woman who said... Was this Over like Charlie's kind of dead body? What was yeah. that kind of? Was, like, was that chicken circus? Uh, uh, chicken and chips. Yeah, 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 yeah indeed, yeah. Uh, something like that. Or, or you know, it's a political road trip. But the, almost to a man and woman, they said over our dead bodies. But very few of them said absolutely never. Most of them said not now. And I think that that is something that you could perhaps see in the future. But I think that if you were to, if I was to do a similar road trip after the next election, or were I to do it now, I think that the grassroots of Fianna Fáil would say, not a chance to a f- coalition with Sinn Féin. Now, there is a part of the party, Eamon O'Keeve has been most often associated, that would entertain a coalition with Sinn Féin. But I think the grassroots of the organisation would say, absolutely not. Hmm? Well, everybody has ruled it out, but... Mm. Everybody's ruled it out, but we know how that turns. Mm. Moving on, um, Taoiseach, Mr. Varadkar, there's a book launched yesterday evening, which I've managed to have a quick skim through. It's full of tasty anecdotes about his time in politics and how he came to power. Uh, lots of very interesting stuff, including that sort of rather fascinating story about how at some brainstorming session he suggested that uh, the party should set up fake online accounts in order to provide positive comments, Finnegale trending comments, which is an interesting uh, interesting social media strategy. But, but apart from that... Um, you have an interview with him tomorrow. He's obviously out of the bang, back to school, shiny shiny suit back on. How does he stand right now? He was he was sort of basking in the glory, reflected glory of the referendum. Uh, things seemed to be going pretty well before the summer. Is there are we now into a kind of act three of the of the Radker T ship? I I think well, not 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 wishing to scoop myself on uh, on, I'll go on tomorrow's interview. Um, but in general sense, 
I think, you know, Leo, if you were to say to Leo Varadkar when he took over, which is the beginning of last summer, summer of, of 2017, that, you know, in 14, 15 months' time, you'll have a clear lead in the polls, you'll have high approval ratings, the economy will be growing at a, uh, at a fair old clip, you'll have industrial peace, you'll have, uh, you'll have a reasonably sunny general outlook. I think he would have, uh, he would have taken that and accepted it as, uh, as a success. One of the points he's very keen to make in the interview is that, you know, we, we, we not just economically, but almost psychologically, we tend to lurch from boom to bust in, uh, in, in this country. And, you know, he points out that the significant progress that has been made economically, socially and so forth over the last uh, over the last number of years. But the question for any political leader, I suppose, is can he convert that into electoral success? Can he win his own mandate? Can he lead a government that he has put before the people and the people have uh, have endorsed or the people have endorsed in sufficient numbers to allow uh, the doll uh, to to endorse that that leadership and make him Taoiseach. So that is really, you know, the great political test of this phase of his uh, of his premiership, and that's one of the reasons why the timing of the election weighs so heavily upon him. Because the last two times that Fine Gael was in government and went for an election, that is, stood for re-election as an incumbent government. The popular view in the party is that they damaged themselves by getting the timing wrong. In 1997, Fine Gael They could blame Labour both those times, couldn't On they? both occasions, they'll have to yeah, blame yeah, themselves. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in 1997, the view is that they went too early. They went in, in June when they could have waited until November. Had they waited till November, the revel, planning revel, the revelations about planning corruption by Fianna Fáil politicians and so forth would have been, uh, would have been out there now. We can't know for certain what would have happened, but there's a reasonable case to be made for it. In 2015, Joan Burton uh, persuaded Enda Kenny to wait until the February of 2016 before holding the election again. We can't be certain what would have happened, but it probably couldn't have been any worse for Fine Gael. And that question is is hangs like a cloud over the Fine Gael. What about cycle. housing? Like, how important... Like, obviously, it's a complete... I thought you had a brilliant uh, podcast on housing there, was it last Not to do with week? me, it was the quality of the contributors, yeah. yeah. Um, but, it, but it was really interesting. And the point was made that it was that a lot of the problem is actually, um, not actually necessarily political, but dysfunction within the department. And, uh, you know, Sinn Féin, no, no, Brian didn't, didn't want to, to say much about that, but, it, you know, it's that... Owen Murphy might have all the, the kind of the right policies, but he's not able to implement them and he's not able to properly manage that department. And uh, like I know, and I don't really know the housing section, obviously, but I know other sections like in franchise and things. And there's definitely kind of dysfunction in that part of that department. So in the overall I, department, that, those parts of the Department of the Environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so you kind of wonder about that. So how much of this is their like inability to actually manage the thing properly in their inability to actually, so obviously everything with housing takes time. As Pat says, money isn't an issue. 
you have a piece today that Dublin City Council have, you know, huge tender out for a couple of billion for loads of, you know, different bits of apartments and houses in Dublin. And they're saying, like, it isn't money is the issue, it's other bits and pieces are, mm. are the issue. But, like, how, in your interview, how aware was uh, was Leo Varadkar that, you know, this housing issue is really huge? So it's not just the homeless people. It's now presumably impacting a lot of his core voters, a lot of Fine Gael core voters in terms of their children unable to afford rent, in terms of, you know, other families being made homeless. Like it's it's kind of coming home to roost a lot more than 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 it was. Was he was he aware of this or was uh, yeah, he, he Yeah, and I think there's an important uh, point there about I mean housing and health are seen as, you know, the two issues on which the government is most in difficulty uh, you know, for, uh, unfortunately for the government, they are the two issues that are least amenable to quick fixes. There are many areas of government where, you know, problems can be solved, not efficiently, but problems can be solved by throwing money at them. And that is what historically politicians have done, particularly on the run into general elections. But throwing money at uh, at housing and to a lesser extent at health uh, but isn't it the case, sorry to interrupt Pat, but isn't it the case that with health, I'm not saying that people just, that is just baked in, but health is a problem that successive governments going back before the, the last one and the one before, right back to Fianna Fáil governments, they've all struggled with that and it's all, it's all been on the negative side of their ledger when it's come to election time. The housing crisis is an explosion that has happened on the watch of these two successive Fine Gael governments. So it's potentially much more closely attached to to their failure. And it strikes me particularly with what you're saying about elections. Uh, it makes it very difficult or a lot more difficult for a Fine Gael campaigning party to go out on a general election and say, look around you, everything's better, everybody's doing better, it's down to us, when people can turn around and point at this sort of festering sore. And that's why I think that the government needs to demonstrate progress on these things in, in real terms uh, if it is to reap an electoral dividend. So people are interested in Varadkar. very high person ratings. People are interested in him. He has a large megaphone. But actually what matters more than all that is a message about the future, is, achieve, is concrete achievements that they can talk to. It's real concrete difference uh, a difference in people's lives on things like housing, health, rising incomes are on their side uh, for sure. And that's what makes the outcome of the election much less certain, I think, than many people in Finland. And I wonder, Jane, uh, in ter- just in terms of what, what you were saying, how much does that feed into the admittedly more cartoonish kind of depiction of Owen Murphy as posh boy? Because implicit in what you're saying is that, you know, Finnegale people or perhaps senior Finnegale politicians aren't touched in the same way by the effects of the housing crisis as hundreds of thousands of other people are. Well, there's partly that, but I think it's also now, like if you if you look at it, there's people on reasonably um, good incomes um, who are actually affected by it, who are being made homeless. There's, um, I walked out of my house last night uh, to go somewhere and I went past three different enormous queues of people, you know, queuing up for uh, to look at uh, flats and, and apartments around uh, around Rathmines. We have new colleagues coming in who are emailing all of us going, where on earth am I going to find somewhere to rent? So these people who are not on um, 
you know, very low wages or whatever, and they're finding it really, really difficult. So a lot of the, you know, the, the type of person who would turn up for the, the Fine Gael Ardèche, their children are finding it difficult. They're finding it difficult to to find somewhere to rent, never mind to to buy somewhere. So I think, you know, it really is something that uh, they, they're definitely going to need to see action on. And it definitely isn't something that they can just throw the money at. The money isn't going to work. So they actually need to go in and to manage it properly and to look at the kind of issues that, you know, the, the contributors on your podcast last week looked at, which was, you know, how Dublin City Council works with the, the department, the kind of nonsense that goes on between the two of them, how things are, are actually allocated, the amount of uh, land owned by the state that's sitting there totally empty, that, you know, these houses could be put on. The You know, there's so many different things and these aren't being tackled and money isn't the the solution. You, you need money after you, you, you sort out all of these impediments, but they're not sorting out these impediments. And I think it really could... Uh, it could have a serious impact, especially if people believed that somebody else could sort them out. I mm. think in health, everybody complains about health, but nobody actually believes that any other party is really going to make a better job of it because we've people just put their hands up and say, health is just a black hole. What are we going to do? Why can't somebody sort it? But nobody actually believes that there is a solution that somebody else actually has. So I think if one of the other parties could make a case that in fact they could sort out housing, whereas Fine Gael have some reason for not sorting it out, then I think that could, uh, and that's that could make un- a difference. that's the underlying critique, isn't it, uh, Pat, of Owen Murphy from, from the left, and we heard it from Owen O'Brien on this, po- on this podcast la- last week. And I think when you were talking to Leo Varadkar, he was specifically defending Owen Murphy's He's a very strong defence of Owen Murphy. And we have a clip from that interview. The only thing I might have mentioned is, is the kind of, folk, the, just the kind of, kind of recent focus on, on, on Owen Murphy. Mm. And... What I'd kind of say about that is, like, I very much feel the people who are focusing on him personally, you know, on how he looks or how he speaks or um, or what he wears. What they're, what they're really trying to do, I, I think, is um, they're really not people who care about people who are homeless or care about housing. They're just people who are trying to score political points or gain political advantage. And one thing that I think is very missing from the debate. Uh, is the role of local authorities. Uh, like ultimately the responsibility for providing social housing actually lies with local authorities. That's why we call them council houses. That's why we call them council estates. Uh, at the very least, it's a shared responsibility between central government and local authorities. And if you look at some of the local authorities where the housing shortage is at its worst and where homelessness is at its worst, there are local authorities like Dublin City Council and South Dublin County Council. Uh, on which uh, Sinn Féin is the largest party and left-wing groups dominate. Uh, so you have groups uh, occupying properties calling on the city council to CPO them, yet we have a city council that actually is dominated by, by Sinn Féin and, and left-wing groups. Do you um, think the local authorities are failing? I definitely think some are performing than others. Um, what I, what I would de- some are definitely performing better than others. Um, and what I would certainly like to see uh, you know, Sinn Féin is talking now about putting down emotional comments on Owen Murphy. Um, I would like to see them making a greater effort in the local authorities where they have influence to do a better job, uh, particularly particularly ones like City Council and South Dublin County Council, for example. And what they'll say is they will, you know, they'll say central government isn't giving us enough money, 
they will hide behind uh, officials on the council. But the truth is, it's actually council members who adopt the annual budget. Uh, we'll be adopting a budget in October, um, but local authorities will be adopting budgets too before the end of the year. Uh, it is up to them if they want to prioritise housing and homelessness to take money from other areas. It's a tough decision to make, but they can make it. Uh, and if they want to raise additional funds, they can vary commercial rates uh, and the property tax. And I think you definitely see uh, what I think is a real um, hypocrisy from Sinn Féin and uh, some of the left-wing political groups uh, where, where they do have, not power, but certainly uh, influence on those key local authorities that rather than using that influence to actually help us solve this problem, uh, they're more interested in targeting uh, a minister personally. That says a lot about um, how much they really care about these issues, in my view. So, but that's very interesting. I'm not sure how um, wise a strategy that is or how successful it would be if you said it's not our fault, it's those guys over there and the local authorities. Yeah, I think he'll be accused of passing the book on that one. At the same time, he makes a reasonably valid point and it is one of the log jams in the, in, in, in the conveyor belt of, of producing or in the mechanism of, of, of building social housing is that, you know, it's actually done primarily by, uh, by councils and some of them appear to be a lot better at it. Than, uh, than others. Could it be something like water, I wonder? Like, I'm not an expert on, on housing. But if it's different and all of the different councils, so some of the smaller councils have very little money to do it, others have a lot of money to do it. But if we had a national agency that actually did this, uh, that would be one thing. But also the other thing is, if I understand correctly, um, the actual money to councils to build land comes from the centre because the councils raise very little money themselves. Yes. And that amount, that money was cut by 90%, I understand, and has only been very slowly coming back up. So, in fact, even if the councils wanted to build, they mightn't. And then the problem is that the department that Owen Murphy's in charge of doesn't seem to work very well with councils, from what I understand. Clearly it doesn't, So, yeah. you know what I mean? There's... There's kind of multiple layers in this. There is, there is it, multiple layers. And it's complex. And I think procurement so, yeah. is long and tedious and subject sure. to legal challenge. And all, all, all those would add to that. I would add to that as well that while there is some legitimacy to criticism of certain councils who, for example, have given as much property tax back as possible to property taxpayers and therefore haven't had as many funds as they might as they might have to hand. The other reality of Irish local politics and Irish local authorities, these local authorities are effectively run by civil servants and county managers and the amount of power that local councils have is is minuscule compared to what you would get in regional governments in other countries. No, but there's also a healthy track record of politicians objecting to social housing in their uh, local and national politicians objecting to social house, housing in, in, in their area. So, you know, it's not as it's not as simple as local government bad, national government good, or, uh, or vice versa. But I do think that Leo Varadkar is on to something, just going back to the politics of it, when he says that, you know, the other guys, you know, if they have... Uh, if if they have plans, better better ideas for social housing, for the quick provision of social housing, then let us hear them. This is a point that Owen Murphy also makes. Does it bring them into the doll? We don't have a majority in the doll. Let, let them gain support uh, for their plans. And I think that it demonstrates, you know, when you go back to the but electoral that's the context. That's isn't it? Whether anybody believes that somebody else will actually have a better plan or not. But that's the electoral somebody else contest. Can do it. That's yeah. what the election debate is about. And that's fundamentally different. The dynamic in an election campaign is fundamentally different to the one in peacetime, I think. And that's what makes 
the, the, that's what makes any election largely unpredictable. I'm sorry to be so vulgar as to bring it back to personality, Jane, but actually reading the Leo book uh, last night, I mean, it's very clear, Owen Murphy figures very largely in it. He is the kind of the, the baldrick to Leo Varadkar's Blackadder in, in, <laughs> in, in the whole thing. And uh, you do get a sense in the clip that we heard there is that, that um, the Taoiseach takes it slightly personally, these attacks, on, these personal attacks on Owen Murphy. Yeah, he, he does. And of course, like there's no... Um, like a lot of the personal attacks, I'm sure the the Taoiseach is, is quite right, are, are driven by politics rather than anything like, you know, what Owen does or, or doesn't wear or his, his kind of general demeanour has absolutely no repercussions on whether or not he can, you know, oversee his department properly and get the plans for housing delivered. It's all part so of the gig, though. It's, it's part of the gig, but I think, you know, he's kind of an easy target from that point of view. But I think that the interesting thing is whether he actually has the administrative and uh, managerial chops to actually do the job and to oversee it and to step over some of this complexity and to get people working together who aren't otherwise. And, you know, so whether he can actually do all of that kind of thing, um, I think is the important thing rather than um, how much he pays for a suit. Finally, Pat, and, and briefly, uh, we're not going to mention any presidents of the Irish variety um, this week, um, but there's another president uh, coming to Ireland pretty soon. I refer, of course, to the President Trump baby blimp, which will be arriving in Ireland, we are told, in, 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 in today's Irish Times, uh, a large six-metre-tall six, six uh, Trump in a nappy, which will be floating probably over the city of Dublin in early November to coincide with the arrival of the President of the United States. Is there anything we can say about this apart from it's going to be and we're allowed to say this because we're not on radio a shit show <laughs> it's going to be a security nightmare um, uh, it'll be but you know these sort of things happen US presidents visit I, I imagine the security will probably be you know uh, more extensive than was in place for uh, for Barack Obama then again President Trump is unlikely to address an adoring rally of 100,000 people in College Green uh, I suspect. Um, the word from government now, people in government that I've spoken to about this are more or less in the dark as to what's going to happen as of yet because this appears to have been caught many of them by uh, by surprise. This isn't uh, a visit is that has been carefully... Is it definitely Dublin? And it, 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 Dublin isn't, it isn't the golf course? In... It's both. Okay. So the as best they can figure out in Dublin and after initial contacts with the US authorities they expect there to be a meeting between uh, the Taoiseach and uh, President Trump in Dublin and then probably a private visit to the golf course in Dunebeg. The interesting thing of course in uh, Dublin or one of the interesting things in Dublin is that protocol would demand that uh, the visiting head of state will make a courtesy call on our own uh, head of state. Now, could be anyone really. Could be anybody. <laughs> it could be anybody. Could be a Marilyn Monroe could, person. Could be, uh, could be President Michael D. Higgins if he's elected for uh, for a second term, and uh, that'd be worth paying be a, a bit. Lie on the wall for that story. one. Uh, I think would be uh, would pay off. Jane, will you be out wearing your pink hat with the Million Woman March in Dublin on November the thirteenth or whenever it is? Whenever it is, I hope so. I'm I'm actually going to um, uh, I'm going to the the UN to talk about our wonderful constitutional uh, convention and citizen assembly and everything. They've got a great interest now. This is going. I come back on the Sunday, so uh, I'll have to see. 
uh, whether I'm around for it or not. It could be slow going through the airport. It could be. (laughs) You have been warned. Jane, Pat, thanks very much for coming in. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to Pat and Jane for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer Declan Comlin and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can also get me at email at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.